0: Praise the Lord for that song. Would you join me this morning, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter number 8. Last week and this week both, uh, we are attempting probably a little larger sections of scripture than we normally would hit, Uh, and that's just because of the way the verses break down. Uh, Not very often we would cover 40 verses in three weeks, uh, but that's just the way it falls out. All right, Acts chapter number 8. In a moment, we'll begin in verse number 26. Thank you for being here. Uh, Last week, um, the the title of last week's message uh, was Simon the Sorcerer. Um, But really, at the end of the day, the main thing about this text is that the church, the early church, was in the city of Jerusalem, and it was just Jewish, and then a persecution began, and... No doubt thousands, most of the church apparently exited the city of Jerusalem to escape the persecution. And they went, uh, I'm looking back at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so this man Saul of Tarsus is persecuting the church. He's spearheading the Jewish persecution against Christians. But it really backfires because everywhere these Christians go they have their faith and they have the gospel and they start sharing it. And people are getting saved. And then we're zeroed in after that on this man named Philip, who was one of the original seven that the church chose to be hands on leaders uh, in a notch below the apostles. And so Philip uh, was listed second in that list behind only a man named Stephen. And Stephen has now been put to death. And so we're following this man, Philip. Up to, a city, up, up to a city in a region of Samaria. Would you look this way right quick? Watch this. So we have Galilee up in northern part of what we would call Israel at this time. Galilee, that's where Jesus did most of his ministry. Then we have this section, Samaria, half Jew, half Gentile. And then we have Judea, and in Judea is where the city of Jerusalem's at. And so this man, Philip, he fled northward, and God started using him, and a great spiritual awakening took place. And many are getting saved and coming to faith in Christ. But one issue that we found last week was that as they got saved, put their faith in Christ, they even got baptized afterward to go public with their, who they are and their allegiance to Christ, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And so the apostles heard what was going on in, in Samaria, and so they send Peter and John. And Peter and John do two things they pray for the Samaritans, the half Jews, that they too would receive the Holy Spirit. And then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And if you missed that message, uh, that was, last week was one of those messages that I, if you missed it, I, I, I said it not too long ago, but I, probably five, six, maybe seven times a year, I would say, you especially need to go back and listen to last week's message uh, because of the content of it. You really need to get that if you've missed it for any reason. Go back and hear that. All right, so they pray, and they end up receiving the Holy Spirit. So now, the Samaritans have the Holy Spirit. And that's really the main. But in that, if you were here, you remember that we noted how important it is that Christians have the Holy Spirit. And we end up giving like seven evidences because anybody can say, Yeah, I'm a Christian. Uh, Probably, I don't know this to be the case, probably 100% of the people here this morning would say, I'm a Christian. They're in this room right now. You would say, Yeah, I'm a Christian. Uh, But it's highly unlikely that 100% of the people in here are Christian. And so we noted, just saying you're Christian doesn't make you a Christian. The real test, one of the real tests is, do you have the evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life? And so we looked at seven things uh, that we could notice that the Holy Spirit, like, man, there's no doubt the evidence of the Holy Spirit is in my life. And that's one of the reasons I would want you to go back and listen to that so you could evaluate your life. Do I have these seven evidences in my life? So now we're going to fast forward So Philip's in Samaria, and now we're going to pick up in verse number 26. Would you read with me? Let's read from verse 26 down to verse 40. Now, an angel of the Lord. Notice it's not the angel of the Lord, an angel of the Lord. So some angel is sent on a task. This angel said to Philip, rise and go. Remember, he's in Samaria. Tells Philip, the angel says, rise and go toward the south. To the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Angel says, rise and go. Verse 27. And he rose and went. I don't do a lot of underlining in my Bible. This is one I preach from. I I just don't. It's just, I I do more of this. These are my underlining notes and all here. Uh, I had to underline something there in verse number 26 though. I underline these words. Rise and go. And in verse 27. And he rose and went. Now listen, everybody, listen, everybody with me? One of the key things that I love about this guy, Philip, is when he's told something from the Lord, he just does it. Hey, rise and go. He rose and went. This is this man's pattern. Is this your pattern? Is this your pattern? When you know God has said to do something, you just do it. Or are you kind of more evaluate, think it through, I'll see how it fits in my life kind of person? Verse 27. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a black man, right? So there's a black man from Africa. So he's down on this road south of Jerusalem, the road that goes from Gaza. And then, by the way, if you kind of think, watch Gal- from your perspective, Galilee, Samaria, Judea, Jerusalem. If you go this way, then over here's the Mediterranean Sea. Over here is Gaza. So this road from Jerusalem to Gaza, and then it's going to go on down, down into Egypt and into Africa, Ethiopia. So that's where this man is. He's you're gonna see he's been to Jerusalem and now he's heading back home. Verse 27. Philip rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of, we look at that and we, we see Candace. Uh, it might actually, in this text here, be Candacee or even Kandaki. Candace or Candacee. Not real sure that kind of go, I'm not an expert on that. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace. So in other words, this is not her name. This is a title like Pharaoh or Caesar. So this Candace, Kandaki, is a title. For what? Queen of the Ethiopians. So there's this Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official in her court. She's the queen of the Ethiopians. She's not here, but he is there. And he was a queen, that she was the queen of the Ethiopians, and he was in charge of all her treasure. So he's the treasurer of the whole nation. He's like the secretary of the treasury of the whole nation of the Ethiopians. Verse continues. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now let that sink in. Why would a man out of Africa, at this time period, if a man out of Africa is coming to Jerusalem to worship, then we know why and who he's coming to worship. He's coming to worship the God of the Bible. Yahweh, Jehovah, so this African has been to Jerusalem to worship, verse 28, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, the idea here is a covered wagon type chariot, he's returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah, this man has so much power and so much access to wealth, he had somehow, I don't know how, he has access, he has bought an Isaiah scroll, they didn't have the Bible put in a form like this, you would have bought an Isaiah scroll. These would be handwritten. I mean, these would be in synagogues. But this man has his own as he's heading back down to Africa. Verse, 20, verse 29. And the Spirit. So here's the pattern again. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So earlier is told, rise and go. He rose and went. Here again, the Holy Spirit inside says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him. This guy, he just here's the command of God. Off he goes. So Philip ran to him, and he heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. So the man's reading out loud. And that's what people did in that day. They would read out loud. It's not like private, silent reading or certainly not speed reading in that day. He's really taking it in. He's reading out loud. And he, So Philip comes up to the chariot and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked. So he asked him a question. Do you understand what you're reading? Hey, are you able to make sense of what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? And there's something in literally the grammar and the words that were used here that tells this Ethiopian something. Because in verse 31 he says to Philip, how can I? Unless someone guides me. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. So, something, hey, do you understand what you're reading? It implied, I can help you with that. I know what that is. Do you need help? How can I understand unless someone guides me? The answer, no, I don't understand this. He's having a real problem with this section of Isaiah that he's reading. He's got this scroll and he's reading. Now we're going to find out what section. Now, the passage of the Scripture that he was reading was this. Quote, it's Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7 and 8 we know. This is what he was reading. Like a sheep, he... So this is what this man's having trouble with. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb, before its shearer is silent. So he... Opens not his mouth. This is really troubling, this man. This servant figure of Isaiah, as he's been reading, no doubt, in context. I'm down to this section where this servant leader of Isaiah, he's heading to the slaughter. He's going to be slaughtered, and he's like a sheep. He's just going. And kind of like a lamb that's getting sheared by the shearer, it just sits there, and it doesn't even bleat or make any noise. It's just taking it. And so he, this person, this servant of Isaiah, is just heading to the slaughter, saying nothing. He doesn't even open his mouth. And if that wasn't bad enough, verse 33 continues out of Isaiah. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. He's been done a great injustice. There's been a corruption, a court. He's, the reason he's heading to slaughter is because he's received injustice. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Will, will he really die? Verse 33 continues... Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. He will not have physical descendants. He will die. And so the unit said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Man, if you know the answer to this. Is the prophet Isaiah here, is he talking about himself? Is he talking about someone else? I kind of think if I had that key, then that would probably unlock the whole text. By the way, listen. In prophecies and in parables, there's usually one or two, maybe three keys. If you get that piece of information, the whole text just comes alive. And, and the classic example is Jesus' parable of the sower. You remember that? The parable of the sower. Once you know that the sower is someone who's representing Christ and giving out the gospel, and this seed represents the gospel itself, and these four types of ground represents four kinds of people, once you have those things, then you can kind of go, and oh, I see, yep, that kind of person, and... and The parable really comes to life and starts making sense, Dude, do you know who Isaiah is talking about? In fact, ancient rabbis, at one point, the the majority interpretation of this text in Isaiah was that this had something. It's very confusing, but it has to be tied to this servant of Isaiah. This is the coming Messiah. And they would attribute it to that until Christians... In the New Testament time, Christians start applying this passage to Jesus and then suddenly the rabbis need to change their interpretation. And then they're like, well, it's Isaiah or Israel is the land. Neither one of those fit. But this man's reading this text. About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Here we go, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture. This man is reading Isaiah. That's where... Philip began. Now, notice he begins there. doesn't mean he just lingers there. He's no doubt going in different places in the Old Testament. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. I I have good news for you. The good news is about Jesus, and the good news is found in the scripture. And he begins right where he's reading. The Bible is about Jesus. Like, literally, y'all understand, anywhere we could go this morning and drop in, It can be connected back to the person of Jesus. And this is exactly what Philip is aware and he's familiar with the scriptures well enough. They're like, where are you reading? Oh, scoot over. Let me tell you. And he takes it immediately to Christ because that is the interpretation. Verse 36. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, and the idea here is, you see the exclamation point is like surprised, thankful, glad. The eunuch said, See, look, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Look, there's water. right, Almost as if, hey, this isn't going to happen again out where we're at. There's water right over there. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, notice, you see the screen, and in your Bible, if you're in the ESV, there is no verse 37. We just read verse 36. The next thing is verse 38. Uh, That's because in the earliest texts, The earliest manuscripts, verse 37, was not in there, but some later manuscripts did put verse 37 in there. um, And that's why the translators... Now, if you have, like me, drop down, you have a note at the bottom, if you have an ESV Bible, and it tells us what verse 37 would be. And it's this. So, verse 36, they're on their way. This man, the eunuch, sees some water. See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? If verse 37 is supposed to be part of the text, that's disputed. But verse 37, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Hey, what prevents me from being baptized? If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Verse 38, and he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And then when they came up out of the water, literally, see, they're just soaking, dripping, coming up out of this body of water. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried, literally snatched Philip away. Physically, just snatched him away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And went on his way rejoicing. Like, man, thanks so much for... He's rejoicing. And he heads on down to Africa. And he's never going to see Philip again. You're like, what in the world? What happened to Philip? Verse 40. Philip found himself at Azotus. He's 20 miles north. Wonder what he's going to do. What he always does. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And that's where we'll find him in chapter 21. Still in Caesarea. Would you notice three things with me this morning? Number one, there's an unusual assignment from God. There's an unusual assignment from God. And we notice it in verse number 26. There's an unusual assignment. And hopefully you pick up what is unusual about it. Verse 26. Look at it again after you've written that. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. So what is... What is so unusual about this text? Well, again, I did a little map in our our minds. You got it in your mind. So we have Galilee, Samaria. This is where he's ministering. And then we have Judea. And then down here is the road that goes down to Gaza. Now, there's two Gazas at this time. There's an old Gaza that's kind of been destroyed well, like over 100 years earlier. And there's kind of a new Gaza. And we're not sure which one. Here's the bottom line. This... This area is the last watering stop on your way down into Africa. So as any, there's a lot of traffic would go through here. But as traffic goes through here, they know this is the last watering stop. And that's where God is going to have this encounter take place. So here's what's unusual. Philip, I'm going to give credit. God is bringing about great spiritual awakening in Samaria. But God's doing it, but physically, the spearhead, the point, the human instrument being used is Philip. And God, in the midst of this great revival, back in early verses of this chapter, said crowds are are believing and God is using him to do miracles. I mean, and now they receive the Holy Spirit. Just so many great things. God says, leave there and go down to a desert place, to a deserted place. Now, I don't know about you, you may be, if you're a thinking person, especially someone who's in the ministry, that sounds really odd. Like things are going great. People are putting their faith and trust in Christ, and you want me to go down to a deserted place for, for one guy, for one fella? That's it. That can't be the will of God. Well, it was. I want us to kind of just say, again, I don't, to me, the lesson here is easily Perceptible, you would get it already. We want to write it out. It's going to have two or three parts in these little note that you're going to take. But we need to kind of flesh it out just for a moment, personally. So I want to propose to you. Please get it. It is highly likely that had Stephen or Philip stayed in Samaria, he would have had many more converts. Let that sink in. It is highly likely that he would have had many more personal converts had he stayed in Samaria. But here's the thing. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. So he's he's in the ministry. Things are going great. And then God says, leave all of this success. I need you to go down here to a deserted place. And some well-meaning, well-intentioned. Theological buddies would say, God, I I even heard this one time. God would never call someone to leave a larger work to go to a smaller work. That is a lie. That is not true. Here's what we got to remember, and I want to encourage all of you. You keep your eyes on the master and not just the ministry because the ministry will let you down. The ministry will let you down. You keep your eyes on the master. Yes, we tend to the ministry, but the key here is, Philip, man, things are going awesome up here. You want me to go down here? He just does it. He obeys. He would have had more converts up here. So what's the lesson? Is there a lesson that is simple? Watch. Many mass evangelism taking place. Go down here to minister to one person. What does that tell you? I want you to write it down. God places great value. In the middle of that note, God places great value on one person, one single person. So here's what we can't do. Here's what I want to encourage you not to do, and myself included. We must never hear a message from God that is to us and just dismiss that true message from God because it's unnatural or because it's illogical or because it's uncomfortable. We can't just dismiss the message of God. Philip doesn't do that. This is not logical. This is unnatural. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 11, verse 33. I memorized it in the King James, so that's what you'll hear as you're writing that note. The Bible says, Oh, the depth of the riches. Oh, the depth, deep, deep, deep depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So, Here's what that means. God's ways, His purposes, the things He's after are not the ones that you and I would pursue, but He's God. He's sovereign. And the ways that He goes about, His methods of accomplishing, so His purposes are not the ones that we would be after. And nor the ways that He uses to accomplish His purposes, those are not the ways that we would do it. We would do it different. We would be pursuing something different, and we would be going about accomplishing it different than God does. And that's where we think, man, God should really check with me. I've got some great ideas. But your way is wrong, and my way is wrong, and God is after the right thing, And His, even when they're mysterious. So I don't know. Well, I'm not going to offer personal. I have some. I've used them in the past. Have you ever had a point in your life where you felt like God has told you to do something, and you know it was God telling you, but it didn't make sense? Don't disqualify it just because it doesn't make sense, or because it's unnatural, or because I don't really like that. Let's flesh that out just for a moment. Two missionaries, watch. They go to similar places, similar gifting. He goes over here. This man goes over here and spends his whole life just evangelizing. And who he wins to Christ, he develops them in the Lord and starts a church. And maybe another and another. And God blesses and he wins many people and makes many disciples. And that's awesome. And over here is this lady and she goes to this area. And she, too, evangelizes and spends some time in discipleship, but she has a unique gifting, and her unique gifting, she's really good with languages. And she ends up spending decades of her life, same amount of time, and she ends up translating, learning the language of this place and that place, and she ends up translating the Bible into their language. And so they both die, and this man over here, he's won a lot of people to the Lord and made quite a few disciples, and she's won a few to the Lord and made a few disciples, but she has translated the Bible. and into... Both have been in the will of God, right? What she's actually done is going to have a longer-lasting impact even than what he has done. But mentally, and here's where we may say, I want to be this guy because I get to win more people to Christ. What is God calling you to do is the question. Second illustration. Watch. By the way, this happens, and I think this happens subconsciously with some. Praise the Lord, some people are evangelistic. Praise the Lord for that. But there are some, in their zeal for evangelism and winning converts, they literally neglect discipleship. Like, win new people to the Lord ain't got time. I got to go on and tell other people about the Lord. And they try to win that person. And along the way, they end up winning quite a few people of the Lord. But they don't develop and they don't disciple anyone. And by the time they die, here's what's happened. They have won quite a few converts firsthand. But what they have missed out on is the opportunity to invest in people and make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, and had they done that, then eventually multiplication outperforms addition all the time. It's not a, I do this or I do that. A lot of people who love doing discipleship don't like to evangelize, and some like to evangelize. I ain't got time to do discipleship. I'm out busy winning souls. No, it's a both and. We are called to do both things. Follow the will of the Lord. I'm gonna give you one more, and this is not to make anyone uncomfortable, but just gotta say it. You remember Jesus' parable of the talents? Y'all remember that? Now, technically, a talent's amount of money. It was an amount of money. We have now used that term to like, talk about a skill, an ability. This man is going away into another country, and before he leaves, he has three servants. He gives the first servant five denominations of money, five talents. These are larger denominations of money. He gets five talents, this man gets two talents, and this one gets one. The one with five really applies himself, and he's a great steward, and he works with what he's got, he invests, and again, he's just wise, and he works with it and multiplies, and his five becomes ten. And the man that had been given, he listened, less opportunity, less opportunity, but still great opportunity. He works with what he's been given, and he multiplies it, and by God's grace, his two talents become four talents. And then the one had less opportunity, just the way it is, He's just given less opportunity, had less open doors, but he took his one talent, and unfortunately, rather than working with it and developing and being a faithful steward, he just buried it. So here's my question. Who remembers what happens to the one talent, ultimately? Does he have five? It's given to the man who has ten talents. Think about that. This is taken away from this man, and it's ultimately given to the one who has ten talents because his five has doubled. You say, man, that's a great story. I do remember, I don't see any connection whatsoever with this text. Jesus places, God places great value on time invested with just one person. Philip, man, he was great with mass evangelism, but Philip was also willing to work with one person. Here's why I mentioned that parable. In the last month or so, Deanna and I have had multiple people, at least a couple of men, one of whom I know is even here this morning, and Deanna, some ladies or a lady I think is even here this morning, approach us about needing one-on-one support, one-on-one discipleship, and that's been brought to us. And it's been vocalized, I know, to some men among us. It's been vocal. I don't know if the ladies have been told in details, but here's what we notice: This has gone out, and you may be sitting here like, "Hey, I haven't heard this," but I know some have heard of this need, this request. Man, I'd love somebody to come along and support me individually. I'd love to be discipled, and that's been put out there. Zero bites. Nobody's bit. Now, usually, I'm gonna tell you, usually, here's what's gonna happen, and probably out of coming out of something like this, there'll be somebody over here who's heavily involved in ministry already. Man, they're, they're making their two talents and they're making them four, or they're five, they've made them ten. And here's what's usually gonna happen the, the opportunity is gonna be lumped on somebody that's already just killing themselves, that has like no margin in their life. When I think what should happen is some people who've heard a thousand sermons. 10,000 sermons. A lot of poured into them, but you can't point to one area of your life where you actually poured into anybody else. You're like, well, I attend that thing over there. That's awesome. You go to this place and receive, and you go over here and you receive, but whose life are you changing? If you're in this, like, hey, I just don't have a lot of opportunity. I don't have a lot of talent. When you hear something like that, what you ought to say is, what's their name? What's their phone number? But what will probably happen is somebody over here, if anything happens, somebody that's overwhelmed already will give it to me, and they're going to be blessed. They'll be blessed, and you're going to stand before the Lord one day. I'm saved. I took the opportunity you gave me, and I just kept them to myself. God cares about investing in a single individual. It's worthwhile. He cares. So if we learn nothing else... God will call a man from all of this to go reach this man. Tradition tells us, not scripture, that this Ethiopian goes and founds the Ethiopian church and great things happen down in Africa. Number two, there's not only an unusual assignment, there's a divine appointment from God. There's a divine appointment from God. God. Notice verse 27. I alluded to it earlier. So Philip rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he's returning, seated in his chariot, and he's reading Isaiah the prophet, and we know where he's reading. Let me hit a couple of things quickly. Watch. This Candace, or Candacy is just a title, as I said. But in Ethiopia at this time, this is important, The queen actually ran the country. The queen mother ran the country. Why? Because their kings, their mindset in Ethiopia at this time was their kings were like gods. And since he's a god, he's way too holy and way above the mundane things of running government. Those mundane government affairs, that's not for him. And so he's he's not running the country. Queen mother is running the country. Second thing we need to notice, and this will actually be in your notes, is we have this term. There was this Ethiopian eunuch. So what is a eunuch? Eunuch can have two meanings. Watch. Number one, a eunuch can be used very simply as a government official, an official of the government, a eunuch, occupying a position in the government. But the second way it is used is of an emasculated man. Another word, a castrated man. So, it could be a government official. It could be an emasculated, castrated man. Which one are we talking about? Well, guys, listen. Isn't it really, really clear in verse 27? There are multiple descriptions of this man. Look at verse 27 with your eyes. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. So we know that this man is what? Is he a court official? Is he a government official? Or is he an emasculated, castrated man? And the answer is he is both. Why? Because you wouldn't have these multiple descriptions if he's only a government official. Why put the word eunuch in there? We're already told he's part of her court and that he is in charge of all her treasures. So this man is both of these things. Why is that important? I'm not going to put it on the screen. Here's why. Deuteronomy chapter 23, the second giving of the law. Deuteronomy 23 verse number 1 says that a man in essence that fits this position, that is a eunuch, a physical eunuch, a eunuch, cannot be part of the assembly of the Jews. He cannot go into the temple. And because he's denied full access into the temple in all of those proceedings, he's in essence denied full access into Judaism. So as you're writing that note. So here's this man. Yes, he's a court official. Yes, he's a government official. But he's more than that. He's also a physical eunuch who has been emasculated. And because of that, because of his physical condition, he's denied access, full access into Judaism, even though he's been to Jerusalem to worship God. Come up all the way out of Africa, hundreds of miles to worship God. But he's not allowed to have full participation. Now, as you're writing that, I'm going to keep talking. Some people consider this man, this eunuch in Acts chapter 8 as the first Gentile to be brought into the church. So is that the case? So this is some of you may be like, I don't care about what you're about to say. And others of you be like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm actually interested in this. For for those eight of you, listen carefully. (laughs) Is this the first Gentile that was brought into the church? Gentile. Um, I'm going to offer to you... My take is that no, several that I read, they took that position. Several well-known, know a lot more about the Bible. Others didn't. Uh, I don't think this. Now, watch. Technically, he would be in that category because we know he's not a full Jew. Now, follow. At this point in history, we know the church of Jesus already had Gentile proselytes. Already had Gentile proselytes. You say, it's a Gentile proselyte? It's where if you're born Gentile and you want to become Jewish, you become a Jewish proselyte by being circumcised, baptized. You start the offerings. You start the moral law, the civil law, all of those things. You start, you start participating after taking vows again. Circumcision and baptism, and you become a Gentile. Church already had that. They already had Gentiles who became Jews, proselytes, and then became Christians. Already had that. That's not new. That was day one at day Pentecost. already had them. This man seems to be unique in that he is a Gentile, watch, who wanted to be a Jew but was denied full access. And then he becomes a Christian. And so for that reason, technically, he may still be a Gentile, but in the spirit of it, he's actually... A Gentile who aspired and desired to be a Jew but was denied the opportunity. And I say that for this reason. Chapter 10 is coming in which a man who was a Gentile who could become a Jew but chooses not to become a Jew. And then he will actually be what chapter 10 and 11 I think are very clear as the first Gentile in the whole spirit of it. And that man's name is Cornelius. A very important person uh, in the whole scheme of things. And so I would not say that this man is in the spirit of it, the first Gentile. All right, now the rest of you can join back in with us. Because we had another important point coming up, and that's verse 29. So here comes Philip. He leaves. He goes down to the road to Gaza. Over there's a chariot. And here's what happens. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip... Ran to him. If you were here last week, you may remember that when we were talking about these evidences of the Holy Spirit, one of the key evidences that a person really has the Holy Spirit is that they are led and guided by God. A believer, a true believer, has the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit guides us in our life. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. The idea of the children of God. All Who are the children of God? All who are led by the Spirit. People with the Holy Spirit have guidance given to them by the Holy Spirit. Do you have that in your life? Philip did. Now look again. So here's our question. How does the Holy Spirit guide us? And I think if we're not careful, we look at verse 29 and we want to over-spiritualize it. So look at verse 29. The Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Hey, Philip, go over and join that that one right right there. Off he goes, and he starts running. I want to borrow from Stuart Custer, if you're taking notes, write the following. Custer writes, we should not think of an external voice. Don't think of an external voice like a, Philip. Yes, Go over and join. Oh, okay. That one over there and the guy in the chariot going. Hey, who's talking? What, what's there? Oh, I heard the voice. T- no. We should not think of an external voice. The Spirit spoke to Philip's mind. That's how the Spirit talks. He spoke to his mind. Do you have that? So hurry up and write that note real quick because I want to challenge you with something. I'll go ahead and say it as you're writing Grace view, individual Christians, I challenge you, pray. Ask the Lord, would you give me guidance and direction? God, I'm asking you today, would you give me guidance and direction? If you will do that, and then if you will live in harmony with the Lord, here's what you can expect. The Holy Spirit will speak to you. He will speak to you. And you're like, oh, I'll be listening. He will speak to your mind. Now, I need to make a couple of things clear. I want to marry two thoughts together, and I don't want to go too far either way. A man that uh, I sat under his camp ministry for like a, a few days at a time, years ago. I have a lot of respect for him. He wouldn't know who I am. His name's Rand Hummel. And I'm going to offer what you, to you what he wrote. So I'm trying to marry two thoughts. We're talking about how the Spirit talks to us. Hummel writes, watch, listen, listen, listen. He writes, what God has already given us in his written word are the very words he would speak to us if we were in a one-on-one counseling situation. You're like, that would be good. That would be well worth the hundred dollars. If I get a one-on-one counseling situation from God, what would he say? Humble offers that, what we've already been given in the written word of God are the very words that He would use if we were in that one on one counseling situation. Y'all, knew, y'all do know who wrote the Bible, right? Specifically, the Holy Spirit. This is the voice of the Holy Spirit. He inspired 40 men to write this down. Yes, it's their words, but He is superseding, He is carrying them along. These are His words. These are the words, this is the guidance. This is the instruction of the Holy Spirit. But, but, now here it comes. That truth and that dynamic does not nullify that God's Spirit can personally and specifically prompt His people. Yes, these are the words of God. Yes, this is the mind of the Spirit. Yes, this is His thoughts and His teaching and His guidance. But that truth there does not nullify that the Holy Spirit can also, notice those words, personally, specifically. Hey, hey, Philip, go south. Go to that road. That road, yeah. That chariot. Talk to that guy right there. You say, well, that's Philip, man. He's in the Bible. This can be done in your life. The Holy Spirit can speak personally, specifically to each one of us as well. Now, I want to pause for a moment because I need to hit something. I want to warn you to look out for a trap. Here's the trap. The Holy Spirit starts talking to you. Maybe you're one of these people. Lord, this has probably really happened today. Praise the Lord. Somebody in here, you got up this morning and you actually had a conversation with God before you just walked in today and you literally said something to this effect. God, would you just speak to me today and would you show me your will? And then I get up in point one and talk about this thing about these talents and these opportunities and then somebody, not me, I am not calling you. I'm saying somebody may have gotten the old, that's you. And your flesh... Your old flesh nature immediately kicks in with these rebuttals to God. I'm already busy. I'm already busy. That'd be the number one reason why anybody in here, longtime Christians, would hear what I said earlier about these opportunities of discipleship. Many Christians, this first reaction, I'm already busy. So here's, that is true. We're busy. Can I ask you this, though? Check your, what are you busy doing? If that is your default answer, and you're like, oh, I know what God sounds like, and God told you, not Jeff, and God told you, and you started correcting God, who is the Lord, and telling him, I'm already busy. Here's all I'm asking. What are you busy doing? Are you busy doing the exact same thing that unsaved people are busy doing? They're working and paying their bills, and they're investing in their family. And they've got all their personal things to make their lives better. And they're just pouring their life in it. Is that what you're busy doing? And like, I don't have time for ministry. I don't have time to evangelize or make disciples. I'm paying the bills and I'm serving my family. And I got this thing over here I got to work with. But it's the exact same thing on saved people. That's what the flesh tells us. And here's another one. I've done this. I don't have, again, it's similar to the first. But it's, I don't have the time or the resources. Maybe someone's sitting here, and this was you this morning, offering. I haven't given to that. I haven't given to that. We're down to two weeks. What in the world? And God's like, give such and such amount. And your response is, I don't have that many resources. can't afford that, Lord. Don't call him Lord if you're going to say no. Don't call him Lord. God is informing you. I know what you told me to give. You know, I can't afford that. I don't have time for that. Here's the third lie. I'm not gifted enough to do that. I'm not gifted. I'm not skilled enough. Do y'all know that that lie kept me from pursuing what we call senior pastorate or teaching pastorate for a long time? If I sat around and waited till I felt like I had the skill to do that, I'd still not be doing what I'm doing right now. So God speaks, and we like to turn Him down with our rebuttals. Would you write this thought? Did y'all sense the combination? God speaks through His Word, and He also speaks to us personally, prompting us in our heart. Write this quick note. The best way to discern the Holy Spirit's voice is to hear it often in the Bible. The best way to learn to discern, is that the Holy Spirit that's actually saying that? is to hear His voice often in the Bible, but then be open once you know what He sounds like. Man, that's the mind of God. Now all of a sudden, when He starts talking to me individually, personally, specifically, separate from other people, I know that is Him because I'm used to hearing. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? That's where it's at. Because here's what we got to guard against. Because there's two extremes, and you might even be sitting here this morning. Here's extreme number one. God speaks through his word. And that's it. So you're saying the Holy Spirit never prompts you. You're missing out. He's trying to talk and you've tuned him down. Because if it says in the Bible that I'm supposed to disciple one of those two people Jeff mentioned one-on-one. When I find that in the scripture, you're never going to find that in the scripture. And the other extreme is this. I don't read the Bible, but I just follow the leading of the Spirit. If you don't read the Bible, you are disqualified from knowing what the Holy Spirit sounds like. Those are the people who go around, God led me to do this and led me to do that. No, that was you. You wanted to do that. But you don't read the Bible. And so you just go through life with your feelings all the time. It's got to be both. Don't let it be just the one. Certainly don't let it just be the other. Let the one fuel the other. Number, Number two, the next thought I want you to get is in verse 29 through 33. So why do we say a divine appointment? Jeff Musgrave writes the following. And obviously, he'll be with us in a month. And we're reading this. And it made me think, okay, I remember Jeff had a quotation. So I went and got one of his books. The one we're studying on Wednesday night right now. I went and got that book. And I looked back at the introduction and I found this quote. So Musgrave offers the following. So I hope you get this. A divine appointment is when God providentially enables you to touch a life in which He has already been working. A divine appointment is when God providentially enables you to touch a life in which He's already been working. Providentially means not the miraculous thing, it's just how God is orchestrating all the little details and God ends up having your life, intersect with someone else's life, and what you don't know is he's been working in their life, and he's had you come into that situation, and he's been working their life, and he has a job for you to do. This is the exact scene we're seeing here. Philip, I need you to leave up here. I need you to go down here. Okay, he just obeys, not knowing all the answers. When he gets down there, hey, go right over there. Been working in that fellow's life, and you're getting ready to win him to the Lord. So let me hit you with this. I'll give you the other part of that in a moment. Don't let me forget the second part of that verse, okay? The second part of the note. Don't let me forget it. So it's Tuesday evening. It's about 30 minutes before dark. I'm studying in my office, my usual running behind. Okay. But it's good. Because the Tuesday night Bible studies with the ladies have started, and so I've got some extra time. So Deanna's over in the student center doing a women's Bible study. And I'm in my office and i am got, okay, I've got some extra time. And then I notice out in the parking lot beside my truck, there's a car. So I look out, and like, what in the world? And I look out, and again, it's just a few minutes now before dark. And I recognize who it is, and I go out, and it's a person that was burdened. Very burdened because of a recent loss in their family. Very burdened. And so I went out and started talking to the person, and they started sharing some music and a CD, and their loved one had given them the CD, and we talked about that. Mind you, I had just typed a note from Jeff Musgrave about... A divine appointment is when God providentially enables you to touch a life in which He has already been working. So I'm standing there talking to this person. We're five or six minutes in. I'm going to confess to you where my mind was at. I got a lot to do. Deanna and I have a 10 o'clock call with our son who's in Japan who had had a horrible day. Horrible day. For two years they've been you know, grooming and creating bonds between him and his platoon. And he gets over there a week and a half, and somebody else that was supposed to do an, hour, an assignment an hour and a half north end up bailing out on it, physical condition. So second person's supposed to go do that, they bail physical condition. Third person has a physical condition. So here he is, Texas, in the night, Tuesday, not Tuesday, Monday night, early Tuesday morning. I mean really early. Remember, they're 13 hours ahead. Bad news. This is happening. So he has to lead his unit that he's been getting ready to go on deployment for six months, and man, we're brothers, these are my guys. No, you're getting separated, you're going an hour and a half north, and you're going to spend your six months with strangers. And he's bummed about it. And he had this other personal thing that was also happening, and I know that she and I are planning on calling him at 10 o'clock, so I'm like, i got this little bit of time, I'm running behind, and I'm talking to this person in their car, and I'm thinking, I need to get back inside, and it's as though God's like, hey, hey, hello. Divine Appointment. And I talked to this person before about their soul. But for the next 30 minutes, they really listened like they'd never listened before. And we walked through it. And I'll just tell you in my style, I took them all the way up, as clear as I could make it. And I said, so and so, I can't repent for you. I can't believe for you. Do you understand? And they repeated. And I said, okay, let's correct that. And they repeated. And we went over and over. And I said, that is for you to do. And I believe that was a divine appointment. And sometimes we'll miss them. I'm too busy. I've got to hurry. Would you write this down? Notice what Philip does. Philip uses a timely question to lead to spiritual things. He uses a very timely question to lead to spiritual things. Do you understand what you're reading? I see that you're reading Isaiah. Is is that making sense? Do you understand that? And he uses that. I want to encourage you guys. If you haven't learned these already... I know a good number of you have. I want to beg you, and myself included, would, could we this week make a point that even if it's somebody else in this church, you're like, why would I ask somebody in the church? They're at the church. Start having these conversations. We've been taught really good questions that lead to spiritual things. Question one. So, hey, listen, got to ask you, how, is your, how would you describe your relationship with God? Ask somebody that. This week, how would you describe your relationship with God? And let them talk. Oh, it's good. No, 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 no. Tell me about it. And once they've answered that, ask this one. Learn this. Ask this. So, which I did Tuesday night. What do you think it takes to have a relationship with God? I mean, like to live with Him forever. Have your sins forgiven. Live with Him forever. What do you think it takes? Questions are great ways to turn the conversation towards spiritual things. Learn the questions. I'm telling you, they're powerful. If we'll just un- unleash them. Ask these questions. Philip does. Look down to verse 31. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. How can I? Watch. This is important. Do you all know that 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says that the word of God is... To an unsaved person, they're not going to be able to understand it. It is closed to them. The natural man does not receive, he does not understand the things of God. Because only the Holy Spirit teaches them to someone. So no one can understand, watch, an unsaved person can read the Bible and they can learn the facts. They can see the facts, they can learn the facts, but they are not going to perceive the truths. And they're not going to be impacted by the truth. Even if they see the truths, they're not going to be impacted unless the Holy Spirit helps them. They have to have the Holy Spirit to show them the truths and to impact them with the truths. And they don't have the Holy Spirit. But watch, it just so happens that God can use the Holy Spirit that is in you... To bring light and break light on them if we will do like Philip and open our mouth and begin to point people toward Christ. It really works. So look at verse 32. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. F.F. Bruce writes the following. (laughs) You got to get this. At a time when not one line of any New Testament document had been written, what scripture could any evangelist have, more, you have used more fittingly as a starting point for presenting the story of Jesus to one who did not know him? In other words, as F.F. F. Bruce, so if you were to just say, okay, the, old, the New Testament doesn't exist. There is literally not a line of the New Testament at this point has been written. None of it. He asks a great question. What scripture, this Isaiah passage, what scripture could any evangelist have used more fittingly as a starting point for presenting the story of Jesus to one who did not know him? In other words, this is the number one, just so happened to be the number one best place in, in, the, in the, the Bible of their day to lead someone to Christ. Natalie read it to us last week, if you were here. We only have two verses. We don't have the whole thing. Why is this man reading Isaiah? I don't know. Let me offer. I want to offer you. Ready? Maybe. If I had to guess, it would be something to do with one of these two things. Possibly he's just been to Jerusalem. And while he was there, he heard Christians preaching out of Isaiah, what we call Isaiah 53. They didn't have chapter divisions. He's heard that. And now he's got a chance to study it for himself. Or maybe more likely, he's gone to Jewish synagogues and there... They're struggling and grappling. These Christians keep saying this. Let's go over it. What's our answer? Because they, they're very effective at using this passage to make it look like it's talking about this Jesus. Maybe that's where he heard it. Or I've never heard this before until this week. And I really, that's kind of like, I mean, that may very well be why he was reading it. Isaiah 53 is where we're reading. But Isaiah 56 actually has promises from God that that are connected to this servant, this great servant of Isaiah that's coming, made specifically to foreigners, outcasts, and eunuchs. You ought to read it. Like if you got your Bible open, I won't be. I won't hate you if you're like. And you flip over right now, keep listening, but flip over if you want to, Isaiah 56. He's here reading in 53. Maybe he's wanting to know what is the context of these promises to eunuchs because here's the fact. He is never going to be a Jew. You will never be a Jew, buddy, but God has these promises and it seems to be tied to this servant and what he does. I want to know what's going on and he's just reading the Bible and here comes this crazy fellow like, what? You understand what you're reading? Well, how could I unless somebody guides me? Can you come on up? We'll scoot over. And he starts right there. Now, you're about to write, Graceview, you're about to write a note, some of you, that you're going to say, Jeff, that's like the most basic note we've ever heard. I challenge you, don't hear it that way. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture. He told him the good news about Jesus. Do y'all hear it? Here it comes. Man, do I have good news for you. What? There's good news for me. You've just been to Jerusalem. You're a little dissatisfied, right? No full acceptance. I have good news for you. And it's about Jesus. But it's based in the Scripture. Hear it again. There is good news. The good news is about Jesus. And the good news is in the Scripture. So here comes your most basic of basic notes, and you'll be like, yeah, got it. Okay, heard that before. Write it down. All gospel presentations must be based on scripture. They have to have two things. All gospel presentations, number one, they have to be based on scripture. And number two, all true gospel presentations must ultimately lead to faith in the person and the work of Jesus. Very basic. That's an important note. You say, if I want to lead someone to the Lord, then these two things must be true. All gospel presentations need to be based on Scripture, not just your testimony, not just your words of encouragement, not just your ideas. Track it to the Bible. That's where the authority. And it ultimately has to lead to a person to like, here's how you get saved. You put your faith and trust in the person of Jesus. He's the Son of God, the Lamb of God, and You must put your faith and trust in the promises of God. His work on the cross. Your your gospel witness and testimony and gospel presentation must ultimately have those two things in common. And while you're writing that, I want to share this briefly. Because I had this happen Tuesday. What do you think it takes to have a relationship with God? Well, I know I need to get right with God. Okay? True. How do you do that? You know the answer I got? And when you hear this, you'll say, oh, that's great. But I'm telling you, I know this person was unsaved. Need to get right with God. That is right. How do you do with that, so and so? Well, I I, I ask him to forgive me all the time. I ask God to forgive me. Don't stop right there. Oh, okay, well, good. No. Why? So, will God forgive you if you ask him? Yeah? Why would he forgive you? Crickets. Make them understand. Don't let them off with just, ask God to forgive me. A lot of people have heard, I need to ask God to forgive me. Why does God forgive us? Everybody needs to understand, all forgiveness from God is based on the cross of Jesus Christ. It's based on something. It needs to be connected to that. You've got to take that step. That note is very important. Now, our third thought this morning is the short, one, probably the shortest one, quite confident it is. But look at verse 35, one, or no, verse 32 and 33, very quickly. Look at that. We're not going to expound Isaiah, that's a whole separate message. But notice the main idea. Look at verse 32. The passive scripture he was reading was this Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8. Here it is. Like a sheep, this man's struggling with these, he's got his scroll. Like a sheep, he. Was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. And we know he's going to die because his life is taken away from the earth. Like a sheep, he's led to the slaughter. I want to ask you all something. What quality of the Messiah is being... that, that, That Philip would have taken this and taught it to this man. What quality of the Messiah is being displayed here? So watch. A sheep, especially in Israel, this happened like every week and sometimes daily. Sheep would be led to the slaughter, and they go with absolutely no resistance and they're making no noise. They're just next one, next one, and they're going just getting their throat slashed. They're just heading to the slaughter with no resistance. Why are sheep doing that? Because they what? What do you think? Because they're just nice. Oh, you're going to kill me. Okay. No. Why are they not fighting and resisting? What do you think? They don't know what's coming. They don't know what's coming. I see what you did to my brother. Out. No, they don't do that. It's just, next. Eh. And the blood just runs down. And in essence, they'll just look at the person that just did that. Why did you do that? As they die. So, Jeff, what's your point? Write this thought. Isaiah 53, verse 7 and 8 highlights the Messiah's meekness in spite of his injustice done by his murderers. Sheep go to slaughter without resisting because they don't know what's happening. The point of Isaiah is, unlike sheep, Jesus knew full well what was getting ready to happen. I don't know about you guys. Anyone who's about to knowingly be slaughtered is going to be begging for mercy. Please give me mercy. Anybody who's been done unjustly by a court system, I mean... Corruptly treated and condemned By a corrupt court system Is going to be screaming for justice I am innocent This is not right They'd be begging for mercy Screaming for justice Jesus doesn't Neither one Throughout the six phases of his trial Jesus just remains silent Silent That's the quality That is bothering the eunuch And Philip uses this text to show him Yeah Jesus went through phase one. Annas, the former high priest, falsely accused. He just stands there and takes it. He goes to Caiaphas, falsely accused again, in the middle of the night. Stands there and takes it. They beat him up. The next morning, he goes before the whole Sanhedrin. They replay the little mock court. They, too, condemn him to death. Total corrupt, totally corrupt. Jesus never defends himself. Sent to Pilate. Pilate is astonished. He knows this man is not guilty. He could sense it about him, but Jesus won't defend himself. Sends him over to Herod. He literally says nothing to Herod, and then he comes back. And again, Pilate is blown away. Pilate is imploring him, dude, defend yourself. Don't you see what they're after? I can have you killed. You have no authority over me except what is given you. Jesus just takes it all like a meek and mild lamb. But the idea of meekness is power under control. Jesus had the power, could have stopped at any moment. He let Himself die for our sins. So, Philip shares this with him. That leads us to our third thought this morning quickly the eunuch's baptism and joy. The eunuch's baptism and joy. We're not given all the details of the sermon and the lesson and the teaching and the evangelism. All we know is verse 36 as they were going along the road. They came to some water and the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me? Do you see his whole attitude? I've, I've been prevented stuff. Am I prevented? All that you just said sounds too good to be true. Through Christ become a Christian and a follower and a child of God. But I've been prevented before. Is there anything that prevents? What if I want to be baptized? And Philip and he, come to the conclusion, you don't have to be prevented. And they were going along the road, and they came to some water, and he says, what prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Do y'all sense the urgency? Look, there's water. There's a body of water. An implication. This may be the last one. Probably is the last one. But from now until we get to Egypt, man, this is it. I want you to write this down very quickly. Four things we learned from his urgency in this situation. Number one, we learned the great importance of baptism. Baptism is important. His urgency is not because, man, I've got to finish the deal. I want to make sure I'm saved before we leave this water. No, it is not about that. It's about urgency of announcing. It's not urgency of finalizing his salvation. It's urgency in announcing his salvation. Number two. I said this last week. I actually want us to write it this week because it's here again. It's illustrated for the second time in two weeks. We learn this. The New Testament does not teach a waiting period between a person's faith in Christ and them actually getting baptized. There is no waiting period. The man literally gets saved in verse 35 and by verse 36, he's asking about baptism. Verse 38, he's getting baptized in the moment. There's water. Let's go do it. And they get him baptized. Do we end up sometimes baptizing people who say they are saved and they're really not? Yes, it happens. But there's no waiting period. We take a person at their word. We don't wait and evaluate how much repentance does their life show. No, we just take their word for it if they give the right confession. Number three. I need a moment here. I need a moment here. Verse 36. Verse 36. They were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. Verse 38, commanded the church to stop, and they both went down into the water. What does that tell us? Baptism, Biblical baptism is by immersion. Biblical baptism is by immersion. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here. You guys are here at this kind of church, you know. But, I pulled up a little note this morning, if I can find it. Yes. I asked good old reliable Google, which Christian denominations. Um, now, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm not going to use that one. I'm going to get to that in a second. Most Christian denominations do not baptize by immersion. They do sprinkling. Think, having just been taught about Jesus, this man sees a body of water. and What's his response? What hinders me from being baptized? His urgency was to do with this body of water we're about to pass. They have water for themselves and possibly for their animals for the long trek down to Egypt and through Egypt to Ethiopia. Not going to have water for a while. At any point, they could have got the old canteen and poured it on top of him if sprinkling was the way that baptism was meant to be. But it's not. There's a body of water. You're like, well, that's just an illustration, Jeff. No. Baptism, the word baptize, means to immerse. It means to immerse. John the Baptist, he was baptizing people down by the River Jordan. He just didn't come up and say, hey, meet me over here. Hey, go fill my canteen again. And just sprinkles people. That's not the Bible way. Now hang with me. Sprinkling does illustrate this part of salvation. It does illustrate how we are cleansed. It can, sprinkling illustrates being cleansed from sin. When I wash my hands, I do running water. Running water, and that works to cleanse But sprinkling does not get across this whole other dynamic. I'll have you write this down now. Of a believer's immersion into the death and the resurrection of Christ. Sprinkling does not demonstrate that. I have here a water bottle, right? Kind of metal. If this water container, if I were to put a penny in this water, it has been baptized in this container and there's a penny inside. There's not. There's a penny inside. Then wherever this container goes, wherever it goes, and whatever the container goes through, the penny is inside the container going through that. If this container were to go to Disney World, then the penny goes to Disney World. If it goes to Australia or Germany, then the penny goes to Australia or Germany. If this container gets put in a palace and on a shelf with lights on it, then the penny is inside the container. You say that's a great story. What does it have to do with anything? When you got saved, Romans chapter 6 uses the word baptized. We are baptized into Christ, which means we are put in him spiritually so that whatever he goes through, it counts for us as if we've gone through it. So when he's on the cross, we're in him spiritually. We are dying in him. He's buried. We are buried with him. He raises from the dead. We are raised from the dead with him. You don't get that in sprinkling. You understand that? In, in the proper biblical baptism, you die, you stop breathing, you're buried with Christ, you die like Christ, you're buried with Christ, and you come up out of the water, and it all pictures not just cleansing, but immersion in Christ. Same thing, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul uses this idea, we've all been baptized into one spirit. We've been immersed and placed in it. You don't get that from sprinkling. Fourth one, we notice the eunuch's humility and zeal for Christ. I see his humility here. This man's a treasurer. A very powerful man. He's a treasurer. Notice that he commands the chariot to stop. He doesn't just, he doesn't stop it. He commands it to stop. You know what? Think, 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 think. This man is a powerful person coming up out of Africa. He has a whole entourage of people. And he's willing to go get in the water by a man that by outward appearances, look less than him and be baptized by this man. And all these people, who the guy that's stopping it and the whole caravan stopping, don't know how many, but they're all watching as this very powerful man goes down into the water. But since his zeal, he is very zealous. This man has tremendous zeal, and they've already seen his zeal. This is the whole reason we had to go all the way to Jerusalem. Man, our master, he is very zealous for this God. He's so zealous that he doesn't just take a nap in the chariot on the long trip home. This guy's reading the Bible out loud on the way home. When this man hears about putting faith in Christ, first thing he wants to do is go get baptized and go public and show everyone, I am so zealous, I want to announce my allegiance to Christ. That's the kind of person that ought to be baptized. Follow me right here. Who is a candidate for baptism? A person who... Has put their faith in Jesus, a person who knows what they are doing, what they've done, and a person who is zealous about giving a testimony and an allegiance to Christ. Let me say it again. Who are candidates for baptism? This is the person that should be baptized. I've put my faith in Christ. I'm not ashamed of it. I know what I've done, and I want to zealously go public and make my faith known. Let me tell you who Let me tell you who has not put their faith in Christ. Let me tell you who does not know what they've done. Let me tell you who has no zeal about being baptized. A little baby. A little baby has not put their faith in Christ. A little baby doesn't know anything. And a little baby has no zeal about getting dunked in the water. So why do the Catholics... And the Eastern Orthodox, and the Anglicans, and the Lutherans, and the Presbyterians, and the Congregationalists, and the Methodists, and the Nazarenes, and Moravians, and United Protestants, baptized babies. It's a bunch of nonsense. It's a bunch of nonsense. I know we love religion. Y'all know that there's a whole religious, this whole religious movement, this whole activity. You know what it's mainly based on? Acts chapter 16. There's a jailer in Philippi gets saved, and the Bible says that he and his whole family were baptized. He and his whole family. And so some people, from silence of scripture, make a whole doctrine and a whole practice of religion based off of that little verse. He and his whole family. Let me tell you something. If if I was unsaved and I got witness to, and me and my whole family were baptized, you know who that would be? It'd be me, Deanna, Erica, probably Matt as her husband, and Jonathan. And the youngest of us is 25. People just invent his whole family. Even the little babies. The Bible doesn't say he had a baby. And they just come up with it. It makes for great religion and awesome pictures and great videos. It's just infant baptism is not in the Bible. That's the only problem. Other than that, it's really great. It's a total fabrication. And I know I need somebody to lovingly show me this. This isn't hard. This isn't hard. Listen, fellas. It's by immersion, and we don't baptize babies. I don't know why. Like, so much of Christianity does these two things. It's just wrong. It doesn't, sprinkling doesn't do the illustration it's supposed to do, and these little babies that you're dunking, all you're doing is giving their parents some idea that now they're on their way to heaven. Last thing. They come up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit just snatches Philip away like he did. He did. Ezekiel, and like he did Elijah, and like he's going to do Christians at those that remain at the time of the rapture. And the eunuch, even though the man that led him to the Lord is gone, he still has great joy. You know why he has great joy? Because he didn't get his joy or his peace from Philip. His joy, this man's joy is not in Philip. This man's joy is in knowing I've been fully accepted into salvation I'm a full member in the family of God. I have full access to God. Never had that in Judaism. This is awesome. And he just goes down into Ethiopia with his faith. I close with this. Acts 21. You know what Philip is still found doing? He's still in Caesarea. By this time, he has four virgin daughters who have the gift of prophecy. The man has a godly family, and he's still a faithful evangelist. So I ask you this morning, this man, Philip, is a great man. Why? He's a great man. Why? Why? Because he was active in mass evangelism and with one-on-one. This guy, he'll preach to large crowds. He'll evangelize one person. He does not care what your race is. Samaritans, I'll share the gospel with you. Africans, I'll share the gospel with you. He doesn't care what your wealth is, what your status is, what your religion is, what your intelligence is. He'll share the gospel with anything. Anybody, I ask you this morning, will you do that? Will you do that? Secondly, why is this man a great man? Because very simply, he hears the message of God and he just does it. He just does it. Great man. Heads bowed, eyes closed just for a moment. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Philip had a very simple pattern. He obeyed God no matter what. He obeyed God no matter what. Even when it's unnatural, illogical, he just does it. I had a thought this week. I want to run it by you. Heads bowed, eyes closed. What would happen? Could you imagine what would happen this week if, for one week, the people of Graceview were like Philip? God speaks personally. God speaks through the principles of His Word, but He also speaks personally and specifically. What if every person related with our church family just made a habit? For one week, we're just going to respond in obedience. What He tells us to do, I'm going to do it immediately. Something tells me that Uganda offering would not be an issue and evangelism would take place and discipleship would be happening. So I want to remind us, God values one person pray for divine appointments ask God, God would you guide me this week and then spend your time walking in fellowship with the Lord and regularly learning to discern the voice of God in the scripture ask him God guide me learn his voice in the scripture live in harmony with him be sensitive and then when you sense well that is God that's something only God would tell me to do just obey it I'm going to ask you to close with me in prayer. And let's thank God for the meekness of the Lord Jesus. Father, we come to you in his name. Thank you for giving us the very best that you have. Thank you for giving us Jesus, your son, to die on a cross. Lord Jesus, we pray to you right now. We thank you. Thank you that you knowingly, knowing full well that you would be slaughtered, you not only left heaven and became a human being, but you intentionally turned your face to Jerusalem, knowing that when you got there, you would be treated unjustly and hated and hit, spit upon, crucified, mocked, made fun of. But you did it all, silently, because you chose to do it. And above all of that, you bore our sins as the Lamb of God. And now we praise you as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the King of all. You are our King. And we owe you our allegiance today. May your message and your good news be on our lips today. Lord, may we be led to start conversations, to really ask people leading questions that lead to the gospel. Give us divine appointments this week. May we have the courage to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week. I'll see you Wednesday.